Welcome to More Than Medicine, where Jesus is more than enough for the ills that plague our culture and our country. Hosted by author and physician Dr. Robert Jackson, his wife Carlotta, and their daughter Hannah Miller, this program will help you understand that human beings are more than just physiology, that for people there's more than just diagnosis and treatment, and that in life there's more than just medicine for a cure. This is More Than Medicine, and the doctor is in. Welcome to More Than Medicine. I'm Dr. Robert Jackson, and I'm accompanied by my lovely bride, Miss Carlotta. Hello, I am here. And Miss Carlotta, you want to introduce our lesson for tonight? Well, I was just asking Robert about his choice of topic, and it's actually going to be a series on Joseph the Dreamer and God the Sovereign One. And he has been in the book of Genesis. I was asking him about his reading through the Bible. I knew that he had been reading through the Bible approximately every year to year and a half um, for the last 40-something years. I thought he started when he was at age 13, but when you were age, at age 13, you did what? Well, when I was 13, God convicted me that I needed to be reading my Bible, and it happened, I remember, in a Sunday school class of, of 13-year-old boys, and so I started reading two chapters every day and uh, began working my way through the Bible. And somewhere during my high school years, I started reading three chapters a day. And then when I was in, in college, uh, I committed to read the Bible through once a year, and pretty much have been doing that ever since I was about 18 or 19 years of age. Sometimes it takes a little more than a year, sometimes a little less. But I, I guess since I was 18 years old, I've read my Bible through probably 40 times. And the blessing to me is that I know the characters of the Bible. I know the events in the Bible. I know the biblical principles of life. And it's been a huge blessing to my life. And so I started over in Genesis just this uh, last week, and I came to the story of Joseph, and I made a decision that I would share the lessons that God is teaching me with our listening audience. Hence, this lesson, Joseph the Dreamer and God the Sovereign. And so let's, let's begin. And first of all, let's answer the question, how did Jacob come by his 12 sons. In Genesis 29 and 30, we hear the, we see the story of how uh, Jacob came by 12 sons and one daughter named Dinah that was given a name. Uh, Jacob worked for a, his uncle named Laban, and he had, Laban had a daughter named Rachel, who was very attractive and caught the eye of Jacob. And he agreed to work for seven years for his uncle Laban in exchange for his daughter Rachel. However, Laban was a deceiver, which is interesting because the Bible tells us that Jacob was also a deceiver. He had deceived his brother Esau and deceived him of not only his birthright, but his father's blessing. And so when it came time for the wedding night, Laban gave his older daughter Leah. 
And so when the morning came, Jacob realized that he had been deceived and Laban had given him the older daughter, Leah. And so Jacob ended up having to work another seven years to acquire the daughter that he really loved, which was Rachel. And the Bible says that those seven years seemed to him as just a few days because of the love that he had for Rachel, a great love story. Has 39 years seemed long to you or short? Oh, darling, it's just a few days, <laughs> just, a, just a snap of the fingers. It has been short. Uh, it's been the best 39 years of my entire life. So anyway... Then the story unfolds in Genesis 29 and 30 that Leah immediately has five sons and one daughter, the first children of Jacob. Well, then there was a great deal of jealousy between Jacob's wife Leah and Rachel. And so Rachel then gives to Jacob her handmaiden, saying, that perhaps I will have children for my husband through my handmaiden. And immediately, the handmaiden gives him two more sons. Well, throughout the Bible, throughout these two chapters, this common phrase occurs that God opened the womb of Leah, but he closed the womb of Rachel. Well, then he opens the womb of Rachel's handmaiden, and then he closes the womb of Leah. And there's a great deal of animosity and jealousy that goes on between these women. Well, then Leah gives her handmaiden to Jacob. And then her handmaiden gives two more sons. Well, then there's this interesting statement in the beginning of chapter 30, where Leah says to Jacob, I'm sorry, Rachel says to Jacob, Give me children or else I die. Then the Bible says that Jacob's anger burned against Rachel. Now, this was the wife that he loved, his favorite wife. And his anger burned against Rachel. And he said, now get this, this is very important. Am I in the place of God who has withheld from you the fruit of of the womb. You see, Jacob understood the sovereignty of God in opening and closing the womb, and he resisted her anger and her accusation. And he said to her, I am not in the place of God. God is the one who opens and closes the womb. And you and I must understand that ultimately God is the one who superintends the conception of every child. From the children that Adam and Eve bore in the Garden of Eden, Cain and Abel, until the children that were conceived just today, anywhere on planet Earth, God is the one who opened the womb. He superintends the conception of every child. The, the truth that was true for Jacob's wives and their handmaidens is true today. The eleventh son was Joseph, the dreamer, that was born to Rachel, Jacob's favorite wife. 
Now, let me ask a question. What if Jacob had been like most Americans who say, I only want two children. I can't afford any more than two children. He would have frustrated the sovereign plan of God for his life, for Abraham and for Isaac, to whom he had promised your seed shall be as the sand on the seashore, as the stars in the sky. And he had said to Jacob, from you shall come a company of nations and from you shall come kings. How many of us have great nations within us? A rich posterity that will influence men and nations for the kingdom of God for generations to come. But we are either fearful or selfish. So what do you mean by that, Robert, fearful or selfish? Well, I, I think that so many times we are fearful that God will not provide for us and our families if we have more than that 1.8 children that most Americans statistically have in their families. Now, let me share a story with you. My father's family had 13 children. My grandfather Jackson had 13 children. Ten of them survived to adulthood. My grandfather Jackson was a dirt farmer in Clarendon County in the lower part of the state of South Carolina. He had to hold two jobs in order to provide for his family. In the 1930s and 1940s, when all of these children were small, there was no uh, Medicaid for medical care. For poor families, there was no um, food stamps to help poor families buy groceries. It was root hog or die, as I heard my dad and his brothers say many times over. They had to work hard to make ends meet, but yet they all survived. They grew to adulthood, and they all became influential members of our community. And the other thing is that many times people are selfish. They believe that children will cost too much and limit, limit their standard of living. And I have to say one other thing about my grandfather Jackson. I heard a story that one time he went to the county fair and he had some of the produce that they had produced on their farm. He had it all laid out for display. And above the produce, he had a picture of all of his children and over the picture of his children, he had this notation, best crop that I ever had. And you see, he valued his children more than all of the produce of his land. And you see, the psalmist said the fruit of the root womb is a reward. And blessed is the man whose quiver is full. And my grandfather Jackson counted his children as his reward. Even, well, ever after Genesis 29 and 30, the Hebrews prayed over their daughters, may you be like Rachel and Leah. May you be a fruitful vine. Their culture valued children as a blessing. Our American culture views children as a financial liability and a hindrance. 
So, Robert, you have been to many other countries on mission trips, and I have been with you on some of those, and it's quite amusing to watch people's responses when we tell them that we have nine children. They are blown away. So how would you describe it? Well, I've been to probably 20 different foreign countries on mission trips. And in some of the foreign countries, when I tell them that my wife and I have nine children, first of all, they're shocked because they believe that all American families have 1.8 children. Secondly, they're delighted. Thirdly, the women smile. They take Carlotta by the hand and they tell them that she is blessed. And then fourthly, the men shake my hand and they view me with renewed respect. Now compare that with the response that we get in America. When we tell people in America that we have nine children, the typical response is, Don't you know where children come from? And then people begin to look a little bit ill or nauseated or sometimes disgusted. You see, that's the difference between our culture that views children as a liability and many foreign cultures that view children as a blessing. Now, let me give you a vision. Those of you in our listening audience, let me give you a vision Some years ago, I was talking to one of my pro-life Christian friends, and he had been in Washington, D.C. at a pro-life rally. And he was being interviewed by a local television station after the pro-life rally. And the, the television commentator asked him, what makes you so sure that the pro-life side will win? And he laughed and he said, I know we will win. And he said, how do you know? And he said, watch this. He was standing there with five men who were pro-life men. And there were also standing there five women who worked with the National Organization of Women, which, as you know, is a pro-choice organization. And he said, watch this. And he looked at his friends and he said, how many children do you have? And his friend said, I have five children. He pointed to the next friend. How many do you have? He said, I have nine children. He pointed to the next one. How many children do you have? He said, I have seven children. He pointed to the next one. He said, how many children do you have? He said, I have 12 children. (laughs) And then my friend said, I have seven children. Now he said, watch this. And he pointed to the five national organization of women representatives. He said, how many children do you have? She said, none. How many do you have? One. How many do you have? None. How many do you have? One. How many do you have? One. How many do you have? None. And he looked at the television commentator and he said, I rest my case. He said, in 18 years, we will vote them out of office. For you see, God has told us to be fruitful and multiply for a reason. We reproduce a godly heritage. That's what Jacob did. That's what the nation of Israel did, and that's what Christian people should be doing. We raise up our children to walk in righteousness, to be strong, spiritual, civic representatives, and in another generation, our children will be the leaders in every community. Well, let's move on. 
in Genesis chapter 37, verses 2 through 4, is where Joseph had his dream. Now let's read what happens here. Joseph, when he was 17 years of age, was pasturing the flock with his brothers while he was still a youth, along with the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah. Those were the handmaidens of Leah and Rachel, his father's wives. And Joseph brought back a bad report about them to their father. Now Jacob loved Joseph more than all his sons, because he was the son of his old age, and he made him a multicolored tunic. And his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, and so they hated him and could not speak to him on friendly terms. Now, Joseph was the son of Rachel, Jacob's favorite wife. He made him a multicolored tunic, which made his brothers jealous. They were not just jealous because of the multiple colored tunic. They were jealous because it was obvious to them that Jacob favored Joseph. Now, there are several principles that we can derive from this. First, parents should not play favorites. Whenever parents play favorites, it generates dissension among the children, just like it did with these brothers of Joseph. It creates dissension in the family, and it creates jealousy. Jacob should have known this. He should have been wiser than to play favorites with his children. Now, my daughters and I play a game where I often whisper into their ears, Darling, you are more beautiful than the moon, and your father loves you desperately. Oh, and by the way, you are my favorite daughter. Well, they always laugh because they know that I say the same thing to all of their sisters. Sometimes I will whisper in one of their ear out loud where all the rest of the daughters can hear, you know you're my favorite. Well, then the other daughters will chime in. Don't listen to him. He says that to all of us. Well, I can play that game because all of my daughters know that I don't play favorites and that I love all of them equally. But you see, some parents do play favorites and it creates heartache and sorrow and dissension in the family. The second thing we have to see is that jealousy is a choice. Now, many years ago when I was in college, before I met Miss Carlotta, I had my eye on a Christian young lady that I thought I might want to date. But I didn't, and one of my Christian mentors who was older than me, he said, well, Robert, why don't you ask her out? And I said, well, my friend so-and-so has been talking to her, and if I ask her out, I'm afraid that it would make him jealous. Well, my older and wiser Christian mentor said to me words that have always stuck with me. He said, Robert, you don't make someone jealous. They choose to be jealous. Well, I've thought about that a lot over the years. You don't make someone jealous. They choose to be jealous. And you know, this is true of all carnal emotions. 
We don't make someone angry. We don't make someone hate us. We don't make someone have any carnal emotion in their heart. They choose to be full of hate or bitterness or unforgiveness. Many years ago, some of you that are my age remember Flip Wilson, the comedian. And he used to say in his comedy act, the devil made me do it. And the audience would always laugh. But you see, that's not true. The devil can tempt you and me, but the devil can't make us do anything. And neither can another person in your life make you do anything. You and I choose to be unforgiving or full of hate or angry or jealous. And you see, Joseph's brothers chose to be jealous of Joseph. They chose to be jealous of his coat and his father's favoritism. And we will see later the terrible consequences of that jealousy, which then led them to be full of hatred. In chapter 37, in verse 5, we see that Joseph had a dream. And we'll talk about that dream later. And Joseph told the dream to his brothers. And the brothers had unchecked jealousy that caused them to then hate him even more. The unconfessed sin in their heart led them to be full of hate. And the same thing is true in your life and mine. Unconfessed sin in our hearts always leads to more sin. For example... It is unchecked greed that leads a man to rob a convenience store, then murder the clerk to cover his tracks. It is unchecked covetousness that leads a man to steal the affection and then the moral purity of his neighbor's wife. It is the unbridled viewing of pornography that has led many men to commit sexual assault. We will see the outcome of brothers of Joseph. So Robert, how do we deal with carnal emotions? Well, that's an excellent question, Miss Carlotta, because you see, I have lots of patients of mine who deal with strong carnal emotions. Many of our listeners have watched Andy Griffith on television, and they've heard Barney Fife look at Andy and say, nip it, Andy, you just have to nip it. <laughs> and you see, Barney's right. There are things in our lives that, have to, that we just have to nip it in the bud. We've heard it said that eternal vigilance is the price of freedom. Well, eternal vigilance is also the price of moral purity. We must be constantly vigilant to seek out sinful attitudes in our hearts. As a family doctor, one of my responsibilities is to perform cancer screening on my patients, looking for lung cancer or colon cancer or breast cancer. And why do I do that? Well, I do it because cancer can cut short an otherwise 
healthy life. And I submit to our listeners that sin in our hearts is like a cancer. It begins insidiously. It grows larger. It spreads to every part of our life and ultimately destroys us. In the book of James, in chapter 1, in verse 14 and 15, is one of those places in the Bible where we see LSD mentioned. Lust, which leads to sin, which leads to death. Now let me lead, share that passage with you. It says, But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. You see the, the mnemonic LSD, lust, which gives birth to sin. And sin brings forth death. That's a, a useful mnemonic that helps you remember that terrible progression that takes place in the life of of many of our friends, our neighbors, sometimes in my patients. When I offer my patients the choice of surgery versus chemotherapy or radiation for certain types of cancers, and my patients will almost always say, cut it out, doc. I want surgery. You see, they don't want to dabble with treatments that may not be curative. They want surgery. Sin in our hearts has to be dealt with just as severely. So then how do we deal with that sin in our hearts? Well, we have to be severe. We have to confess it. We have to repent of it. And we have to cut off any further access to that sin. Now let's talk about these three words. First of all, confession. That word literally means to say the same thing as. If God calls it sin, then I'm going to call it sin. Number two, I repent. That means to turn my back on it. And three, that means I cut off all access to it. Make no provision for the flesh to fulfill the desire thereof. Now this requires constant surveillance and this requires a surgical removal, even if it seems extreme, because like cancer, sin can destroy your life. Nothing makes me happier than when my patients tell me that they are five years cancer-free and we rejoice together and sometimes we party together. Nothing makes me happier except when they tell me that they are X number of years drug-free or alcohol-free or free from a life of prostitution and now have a legitimate job or they're free of pornography and have restored their marriage. One patient announced to me that he was three years free from narcotic addiction and this is what he said to me. He said, Doc, I am not that guy anymore. I've got a steady job. I'm back with my wife and kids. We're all going to church. Life is good, 
and God is good. Well, that's the end of our lesson today. I hope you'll stay with us in the next few weeks. And we're going to continue to talk about Joseph the dreamer and God the sovereign. Thank you for listening to today's edition of More Than Medicine. You can follow Jackson Family Ministry on Facebook, Instagram, and on their website. Be sure to contact them via jacksonfamilyministry at gmail.com for speaking engagements and for book information. Join us next time for more than medicine.